from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. We're in the news this week for a number of reasons, most of which didn't revolve around the use of U.S.-supplied white phosphorus materiel in uh, the Saudi-led coalition's war in Yemen. Now, you know, white phosphorus. Do you know about white phosphorus? It, um, it can illuminate the battlefield. It can serve as a signaling device to uh, distant troops. But it can also, when it's uh, dropped, and I blame gravity, because it would stay up otherwise, uh, in civilian areas, it can burn straight through to the bone, and you can't put, it, put the uh, fire out with water. Aside from that, no problem. Uh, but as I say, that's not really what made news with regard to our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia this week. The United States Congress overrode President Obama, is it still? Veto uh, of the bill to allow American survivors of those killed in the 9-11 attacks to sue Saudi Arabia on the premise that some high-ranking or middle-ranking, I'd settle for middle-ranking, Saudi officials, royals, princes were involved in financing or otherwise aiding and abetting the uh, 9-11 terrorists. And um, I was charmed to see uh, in the campaign by the administration to avoid the override of the veto, I was charmed to see a note by uh, CIA Director John Brennan, who said, you know, this, this, is, this is bad if this, if this veto doesn't stand, if this law becomes law, uh, because other countries will take advantage of this and say, well, if you did it, we can, uh, we can sue your government for things that uh, your troops did on our territory, which we didn't like. And I just thought that I just wish that John Brennan had written that memo about, uh, oh, I don't know, 13 years ago when he was in the CIA and they were rendering people to uh, countries that torture people and torturing people in, in black sites themselves. And, of course, the premise always went uh, for not allowing that in this country is, well, other countries will do that to our troops. Apparently we didn't care then. Anyway, uh, also in the news, a Saudi Arabian princess, this wasn't in, I don't think, American news, but still in news, a Saudi Arabian princess forced an interior decorator who took a photo of her apartment in Paris to kiss her feet and told her bodyguard to kill him. This is uh, French reports. The decorator has reportedly filed a legal complaint against the princess, a daughter of the late king, over the incident. The decorator said his terrifying ordeal started after he'd taken a snapshot of the interior of the flat in a chic apartment block on Avenue Fouche in the 16th arrondissement. The princess then flew into a rage. Quote, you must kill him, this dog. He doesn't deserve to live. He told police she'd screamed that at her armed bodyguard because she thought he'd taken the picture of her to sell it to the media. 
Guards of Saudi royals are authorized by the French Interior Ministry to carry arms. That's not the case for private security guards of French nationality, with rare exceptions. The decorator said he desperately tried to explain that he always took pictures of buildings where he did projects to be sure to put back objects and furniture in the same place after he was done. The princess remained unconvinced. The decorator said her guard then punched him on the side of the head before tying his hands together. In a fit of zeal, the guard then ordered his prisoner to, quote, kiss the feet of the princess, according to the French newspaper Le Point. He said when he refused, the guard pointed a gun at him. I'd kiss the feet, really, frankly, at that point. According to police officers, the bruise marks were still visible when the decorator gave his testimony. He said his ordeal lasted four hours, after which another royal employee photocopied his identity card, that'll teach him, and finally untied him and ordered him never to return to the 16th arrondissement. The uh, decorator still tried to charge the Saudis for the decorating job, was never paid the $30,000 he demanded, and he wasn't given back his tools either. There have been a string of allegations of abusive behavior by Saudi royals abroad. Last October, a Saudi prince faced allegations of having sexual relationships with a male aide taking cocaine and threatening to kill women who refused his advances, as well as sexually assaulting a maid at his Beverly Hills mansion. Oh, well, Beverly Hills, it's okay then. The um, most infamous, perhaps, was the 2009 conviction of Prince Saud bin Abdulaziz for the sexually motivated killing of his Sudanese manservant. The prince subjected the manservant to a prolonged campaign of violence and sexual abuse before beating him to death in a suite at London's Landmark Hotel. If it wasn't a landmark before, it is now. Our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. Hello, welcome to the show. Woke up today, my mind a world from head to toe with endless fear. Try to explain just what I see. You say to me I must be dreaming. You call my name the way I wished you would in my imagination. Now every single thing around me filling me with this sensation. In my searching around, I've seen so many faces. Now I found the one I needed, and the sun is rising. I woke up today like I wanted since you walked.
Recorded shortly before you hear it from the edge of America, from the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show back in the USSA. As we pointed out last week's show, one of the things you know, you, one searches for the essence of what's so often claimed to be American exceptionalism. And I thought last week we'd found it. I'd found a good, a good uh, component of it. And here we are again. More sightings of creepy clowns. Many of them false. As I said last week, Geraldo Rivera has got to be on this. He was the guy who uh, popularized all of the satanic child ritual nastiness in the 80s, only to have most of it, if not all of it, proven absolutely fallacious. But here we go. In Lawrenceburg, Ohio, the clowns (laughs) of neighbors around Hidden Valley Lake not the not the dressing, the lake, thinking twice about their street's theme for the upcoming Haunted Hayride, Halloween time coming up, of course. They had planned a creepy clown theme before all these sightings of creepy clowns. You don't want to be dressing up like a creepy clown when people are dressing up like creepy clowns. Others said they weren't going to let their children dress as clowns for Halloween over worries it could be dangerous. Quote, if someone did feel threatened or was afraid of a creepy clown or someone dressed as a creepy clown with everything going on, things might escalate, said Carrie Brewer. She says it's ridiculous how far the clown threats and fears have gone. It's sad that what is maybe being blown out of proportion, she said. Yeah. Imagine kids taking this too far. It didn't need to go this way. It's going to ruin the fun. Thank goodness the grown-ups aren't taking it too far. Creepy clowns, ladies and gentlemen. What are... Seriously, what other country offers you creepy clown sightings to frighten you for free? And now, news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol Jr., A report released this week by a human rights organization claims there had been a devastating impact on communities where human rights violations affected 22,000 families in Rio as a result of the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games. Don't want to leave them out. Terre des Hommes, Earth of Humans, has called on the International Olympic Committee to include a series of key recommendations to future host cities with a clause that guarantees respect for child rights as they revise the 2024 host city contract. According to official data from Terre des Hommes, 22,000 families were evicted from their homes since Rio was chosen as the host city for the Games. Many were moved to a government social housing program, more than half of the units of which were at one point controlled by militia gangs. The uh, agency details the devastating impact of the Rio Games on thousands of children and young people. Violations committed before and during the games are documented in full. The evidence includes statistics as well as video testimonies. 
explains a legacy of Olympic, Olympic evictions, police abuse of children and adolescents living on the street, which increased leading up to and during the Games and included severe beatings. Quote, the Olympics were bad for the poor, said one homeless teenager in Rio. They did it to us because we are from the streets. The report details how youths were taken to juvenile detention centers without having committed a criminal offense, which would justify their internment. The percentage of occupancy in juvenile detention centers in the Olympic year reached 224%, a 48% increase over last year. Due to the severe levels of overcrowding and poor conditions, a fire broke out in a cell on the day of the Olympic opening ceremony. There's your flame. Two youth died and seven suffered severe burns. At least eight people, two under 18, were killed by the police over the course of the two weeks of the Games. And there's more. Japan is facing further Olympic-related embarrassment amid word a panel reviewing costs for the 2020 Games will recommend scrapping the construction of three new venues. Volleyball, swimming, and rowing. And canoe sprint. It would be the third time Tokyo has pared back construction plans after being faced with dizzying costs. Two years ago, officials scrapped construction plans for badminton, basketball, and sailing, moving the events to facilities elsewhere. The nation suffered its biggest embarrassment of all when they reopened bidding for the national stadium. The site in central Tokyo remains humiliatingly empty, according to the Japan Times. Details have emerged why three venues are deemed to be inappropriate if the volleyball arena is built in the location currently identified. Its future reuse would be restricted to sports events, couldn't uh, host concerts. The proposed new swimming pool is also now thought to have far too much seating capacity. Moreover, it would be near the existing Tokyo Tutsumi Tatsumi International Swimming Center. The panel believes rowing and canoe sprint facilities should be hosted somewhere outside Tokyo. Sports associations have pointed to inadequate measures against wind and waves. Changes need the approval of the IOC and the governing bodies of the sports involved. The Tokyo budget has quadrupled since they won the bid. And I say they won the bid because the Olympics. It's a movement, and we all need one every day. By the way, I mentioned the quadrupling of the price tag in the Tokyo Games. It's, it could exceed now $30 billion, according to uh, the expert panel. Naturally, the leader of the panel says, anyone who hears these numbers is alarmed. And uh, also this week, Rome has decided, no thanks, no thanks for the Olympics, no bid, thank you, thank you very much, just all the same. They're going to watch it on uh, on their watches. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to read the trades for you. From Current, the trade publication of public broadcasting here in the United States. What does the public radio host of the future look and sound like? You know I'm going to read that for you. Like all successful businesses, 
public radio relies on talent. We all know how important it is to find and surface our new stars. The pressure to hire the right people and keep them has never been greater. The question has been a particularly pressing one for WAMU in Washington, D.C. late last year. Popular talk show host Diane Rehm announced her retirement. As a result, they have some very big shoes to fill. But when she first took the air as host 37 years ago, she was a housewife. It's a qualification that on its own, very few hiring managers would find sufficient today. So how do you find someone to follow her? How do you find a host who is both authentic and authoritative and has the range to speak as fluently in politics and policy as he or she does in pop culture, tech, and sports? And does this person sound and act differently from how a host would have been expected to sound and act 37 years ago? At WAMU HQ, they've been living these questions day in and out for more than six months, narrowing in on the person who will host their new show beginning in January. And they're sharing the scoring matrix they've developed for identifying and vetting potential talent. The role of hosting a talk show requires a special type of personality, and public media has a particular responsibility not to rely too much on subjective impressions of personality. This tailored matrix attempts to blink, bring some discipline and rigor to the process. In the first section, we consider on-air performance. Is the host likable, relatable? In listening to him or her, do you want to know and hear more? Does he or she stay cool when navigating a difficult guest? Next up is editorial sensibility. The host of a show is a key member of a creative team. Does he or she have great ideas? A fresh perspective on the news of the day? An established presence and following on social media? Personality. Here's why we here's where we try to get it. What has made Diane so effective and close to her audience. We want someone who's curious, smart, and accessible, and brings a distinct perspective. As we've seen with the very best podcasts, authenticity becomes key where authority once was queen. Diversity. It's no secret that America's demographics and ethnographics is, are changing, so should public radio. We're seeking a voice and face that represent America in 2017. What do we look and sound like? Collegiality. Bottom line. Can you envision you and your team working with this person? What are his or her ambassadorial qualities? Last but not least is the gut check. Is your candidate giving you all the feels? Something needs to bond with you if you're going to bond with him or her. Are you hearing someone who sounds like modern America and fits with the future of public radio? Is your candidate, ladies and gentlemen, giving you all the feels? Well, it is a successful business, as it points out. Why shouldn't they talk like a business? I, I just gave you some of the feels there as I read the trades for you. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. The feels are copyrighted, too. I should say that um, there's going to be very little about the American presidential campaign on this week's broadcast. 
Martin podcast, even with the stomach noises. This, after all, this past week, was a week where prodded by Donald Trump, uh, American mainstream media felt constrained to come to the defense of the probity of public opinion polls and beauty pageants. Just saying, just saying. And they, they're saying he falls for all the traps. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. News of microplastics. Scientists working in the Mid-Atlantic and Southwest Indian Ocean have found evidence of microfibers ingested by deep-sea animals, deep-sea animals, including hermit crabs, squat lobsters, you know what they know, and sea cucumbers, revealing for the first time the environmental fallout of microplastic pollution. Researchers from the Universities of Bristol and Oxford Working on a royal research ship at two sites have now found evidence of microbeads inside creatures at depths of between 300 and 1,800 meters. This is the first time microplastics, which can enter the sea via the washing of clothes made from synthetic fabrics or from fishing line nets, have been shown to be ingested by animals at such depth. This is reported in scientific reports. Quote a uh, professor of geochemistry, This result astonished me and is a real reminder that plastic pollution has truly reached the furthest ends of the earth. Among the plastics found inside, that's unquote, among the plastics found inside deep sea animals in the research were polyester, nylon, and acrylic. Well, those are flattering. Microplastics are roughly the same size as marine snow, a shower of organic material that falls from upper waters to the deep ocean and which many deep sea creatures feed on. Mmm, looks like snow. More than 700,000 microscopic fibers could be released into wastewater during each use of a domestic washing machine. Many of them are likely to pass through sewage treatment and into the environment, according to other new research reported in laboratoryequipment.com. A study by Plymouth University in the U.K. examined the size of uh, fibers present in waste effluent following washes of synthetic fabrics at standard temperatures. It found hundreds of thousands of tiny synthetic particles released in each wash. The research published by Marine Pollution Bulletin was led by a Ph.D. student, Imogene Knapper. Imogene Knapper. In the paper, she and her co-author says, Say, the quantity of microplastic in the environment is expected to increase over the next few decades. There are concerns about the potential for it to have harmful effects. But while the release of tiny fibers as a result of washing textiles has been widely suggested as a potential source, there's been little quantitative research on its relative importance on the factors that might influence such discharges. So some polyester acrylic and polyester cotton items were washed using various combinations of detergent and fabric conditioner. Fibers were then pulled out of the waste effluent and examined. The research found that laundering an average washing load could release an estimated 137,000 fibers from polyester cotton blend fabric, 496,000 fibers from polyester, and 728,000 from acrylic. Polycotton blend consistently shed fewer fibers than both the other fabrics, regardless of the differing treatments. 
But it feels so good on your skin. Microplastics, ladies and gentlemen, just one word. And on a related subject, news of the warm, won't you? A top-secret U.S. military project from the Cold War and the toxic waste it conceals were thought to have been buried forever under the Greenland ice cap, but they're likely to be uncovered by rising temperatures within decades, scientists now say. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers excavated Camp Century in 1959, around 124 miles from the coast of Greenland, which was then a county of Denmark. Powered by the world's first mobile nuclear generator, the camp's network of tunnels housed laboratories, a shop, a hospital, a movie theater, a chapel, and accommodation for 200 soldiers. Its personnel were officially stationed there to test Arctic construction methods. Scientists did drill the first ice core samples ever used to study the Earth's climate there, but the camp also served as cover for something different, a project so immense and so secret that not even the Danish government knew about it. They thought it would never be exposed says William Colgan, a climate and glacier scientist from Toronto's York University and lead author of this study. Back then in the 60s, the term global warming hadn't even been coined. The question now is whether what's down there is going to stay down there. The study suggests it's not. Project Ice Worm aimed to use Camp Century's frozen tunnels to test the feasibility of a huge launch site under the ice close enough to fire nuclear missiles directly at the Soviet Union. This was at the height of the Cold War. Eventually, the engineers realized ice worm would not work. The constantly moving ice was too unstable, would have deformed, and perhaps even collapsed the tunnels. That left the camp's infrastructure and its biological, chemical, and radioactive waste where it was on the assumption it would be preserved for, the, for eternity by the perpetually accumulating snow and ice. So far, so good, but climate change looks certain to reverse that process. Colgan and his team from Canadian, U.S., and European universities said in this report published in Geophysical Research Letters that Greenland's temperatures broke new records this spring and summer. A figure, well, it hit 75 degrees in the capital of Greenland, Nuuk, not Nuuk, Nuuk, a figure that shocked meteorologists. The ice that covers much of the island melted twice as fast in the first decade of the century as during the whole of the 20th century. This year it began melting a month earlier than usual. The waste includes 200,000 liters of diesel fuel, similar quantities of wastewater, and unknown amounts of radioactive coolant and toxic organic pollutants such as PCB. Based on a business-as-usual climate change scenario, the uh, team concluded, snowfall would continue to be greater than ice melt for a few more decades, but after that, melt will be greater than snow. Every year, another layer of ice will be removed. Our estimate is by 2090, the exposure of the stuff will be irreversible. And once that starts to happen, the question arises of who's responsible for the cleanup? Camp Century. Using rivers and dams to make electricity is often touted as a win for the climate. But it turns out hydropower isn't so squeaky clean. Countries around the world are poised to erect hundreds of new dams that could have big implications for emissions in the future. Reservoirs already contribute roughly 1.3% of the world's annual human-caused greenhouse gas emissions, according to a new study. 
about as much as the entire nation of Canada. It also suggests future reservoirs will have a bigger impact than expected, largely because they emit more methane, that potent warming gas, than once believed. The methane produced by underwater microbes that feast on the organic matter that piles up in the lake sediments that are trapped by dams. John Harrison, a, hydrochem a biogeochemist, two O's, a biogeochemist at Washington State University, one of the authors of the paper published in Bioscience, compiled and analyzed findings of hundreds of studies of emissions from reservoirs around the world. They also took a note of a factor some previous studies had ignored, bubbles. Some greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide, readily dissolve in water and then diffuse into the atmosphere in a fairly uniform way. In contrast, methane surfaces in sporadic bubbles. That's made it hard to get a picture of how much of the gas is rising off a reservoir. But now they have special bubble-tracking sonar. The focus on methane could help guide decisions about where to put a dam, Harrison says. Dams on river systems with fewer nutrients to feed algae growth could produce less methane than dams on higher nutrient streams. And a study has highlighted the risk posed by projected climate change to the world's ability to grow enough food. Food, you've heard of it? A U.S. team of researchers found that forecast shifts in climate by 2070 would occur too quickly for species of grass to adapt to the new conditions. The species facing an uncertain future include wheat, corn, rice, and sorghum which provide almost mm, sorghum, which provide almost half of the calories consumed by humans. The findings appear in the Royal Society Biology Letter Journal. Not only does the grass family of more than 11,000 species form the staple of people's diets across the globe, natural grasslands cover about a quarter of the planet's land area, providing a home to a rich diversity of flora and fauna. The team examined how quickly grass species climatic niches were able to change uh, when, with a changing climate based on how they changed in the past. Quote, what we found is that they don't change all that much, a few degrees Celsius over a million years. These are just small changes over long time scales. In some ways, that is the most important part of the story. Climatic, climatic niches generally seem to change relatively little and relatively slowly. The team found the difference between the rates of change in the study grass species climate niche and projected changes in a location's climate was often 20,000-fold. The findings are similar across all the groups, so they could be applied to wild species as well as the cultivated ones. There is no way that cultivated species are somehow exempt from our findings. They present, the findings do, a bleak outlook apparently squashing the hope that crop species would be able to cope with a warming world. It doesn't show the species going globally extinct. Rather, it highlights how conditions are projected to change in a way that's beyond the climate niche of species. Therefore, they're likely to disappear from that location. The study didn't look at the issue of food security, but one of the researchers said there's a lot of promising research underway in the form of identifying opportunities to develop climate-proof food crops. Uh, we could eat some of that acrylic. Uh, what has been shown, though, he says, is that people continue with business as usual, if people continue with business as usual, there will be serious problems. While relatives are helpful in alleviating the situation because we know the species we've domesticated have a reduced genetic variation, we can look to our food crops, wild relatives, but the problem is they are going to be highly endangered by climate change too. So uh, 
Maybe we're going to stop eating grass. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Hey, welcome to uh, another edition of the Entrepod, the podcast for wannabe entrepreneurs and people who want to be one. Brought to you as usual by friends at Data Dingo, reminding you that just providing access to all your financial data earns you free smoothies at Dingo Juice kiosks all over the known universe. I'm Adam Buckholz, and this is a special edition of the podcast. This is our 25th episode. I'm feeling old already. (laughs) <laughs> and celebrating with me, sharing a dingo shake right after we finish recording, as a matter of fact, is a guest from what you might call the cutting edge of the envelope. Uh, AI is all a rage these days, and his exciting startup is one big reason why. Elliot Sunshine from Walk X Labs, welcome to the podcast, which you, you may notice has moved to my parents' garage since they sold the RV, but welcome all the same. Thanks, Adam. Neat smart car. Yeah, my mom thinks it's a death trap. <laughs> but speaking of transportation, dude, you're doing something so out there that I can't believe you're getting like actual financing at this stage. Oh, you know, a couple of years ago, no doubt. Uh, no way. Yeah. No funding. Yeah. 
Well, as anybody with an Oculus knows by now, the world of AI research is exploding. I mean, not literally. That would be, you know, <laughs> a matter for Homeland Security or something. AI is artificial intelligence. That's the branding, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's exploding because of the, the mainly because the race to develop a self-driving car, right? Hey, you read the press pack. First interview I've done. With. <laughs> well, this is my first podcast. Oh, right. right. Congratulations. Thanks. So, yeah, there's this big push to do self-driving cars. All the big boys are jostling in that space. Google, Tesla, maybe Apple. Right, right. But I was walking in DTLA a couple months ago. That's downtown LA, right? Mm -hmm. It's hot now, right? Oh, it's exploding. Again, literally. (laughs) And I was watching all these pedestrians in LA, right? Right. (laughs) Bobbing and weaving and threading a path and sometimes bumping into each other. And I thought, you know, wow, how many pedestrian into pedestrian incidents happened within the course of, let's say... Mm, a pre-IPO quiet period. Oh, wow. Interesting question. Yeah, it turns out, you wouldn't believe it, nobody knows, right? I mean, they can tell you how many cars crash into each other, but not how many people on foot. Now, I'm thinking developing algorithms to control two tons of steel at speed in a world of other fast-moving packages of steel, that's a big ask. Developing algorithms to control a sentient biped by comparison, that's a no-brainer and a half. Oh, you're, you're, you're talking about what I guess you call self-driving pedestrians. We call them APs for autonomous personoids. Mm. We've assembled a top-level team of AI professionals, giving them a simple task. Develop an algorithm that can control pedestrian perception and behavior and do it before the first round of money runs out. So, uh, like, how would this like work? Uh, would we all be wearing helmets or chips <laughs> when we walk on the streets or in malls or... Wherever people walk. The park, the beach, airports. Absolutely. And yet absolutely wrong. How is that like possible? Right on the ubiquity of the usage, but no helmets, no chips. We knew from press release one that usability was going to be the key to uptake of the uh, Walk X system. It has to be as easy as putting your keys in your pocket as you walk out the front door. Uh And that is the key. An actual key with a USB dongle at one end. You're not saying people have to have a USB port installed in, in like their actual bodies. Right. I'm not saying that. Oh. That's for the computer connection to receive updates and upgrades and, of course, some special offers from our marketing partners when we have them. Ah. Now, while our algorithm team is developing models for perception and motor control of the human, our comms team is developing a radio frequency way to, we call it, Hack your central nervous system. Oh, that sounds unpleasant. You mean I'll get Nigerian phishing scams directed to my brain, dude? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> it's just a way for the algorithm to assume control of your voluntary motor activities for the length of the journey. You tell it with voice prompts where you want to go. It's got next stage GPS built in. Of course. And you're free to bliss out, stare at the sky if there is some near you. It's great for brick and mortar retail because you can actually look in the windows WalkX is paying more attention than you ever could to where you're going. Hey, like that could be your slogan. Hey, you know what? It already is. Cool. Now I feel invested in it. And and think about it, Adam, when you get a chance. Uh-huh. You walk around these days, so many people are lost in their music or their phone conversations. Or texting. Right. In the current setup, that's a bad thing. With WalkX, you know... Go for it. Oh, yeah, you mentioned stores. Mm-hmm. What if you see something in one of those windows, mm-hmm. you actually want to go in and buy it? You have a safe word to interrupt the journey and regain motor control. Oh, cool. WalkX ships with a default safe word, but of course you can customize it, personalize it, have fun with it. Wow. It all sounds like fun. Like 
you're making walking around fun. It's fun for us just working on it. Of course, unlike with cars, there's no licensing or certification before WalkX enables people hit the streets. And we're doing intensive testing right now somewhere in China. Wow. Why there? (laughs) That's where all the people are. (laughs) And again, ironically, less red tape. Uh, How come you, you don't just put people on like personal transporters and then use the AI on those? Well, it's almost like I said at the beginning, we believe that with AI and autonomous transportation, we have to walk before we roll. Well, dude, if your product is as cool as your slogans, you really got a thing here. Well, we have agile financing. We're working on the Seraphim and Deity rounds. You'll be seeing autonomous personoids walking around you within the next couple of years. Hey, by then I may be back in the main house. (laughs) Thanks for being my guest, Elliot. Thank you. And the next episode of this podcast... Will be my 26th, and I'm excited about that too. Till then, I'm Adam Buckholz. So long from my parents' garage. And now, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Well, you can't quite totally avoid the political campaign. When you're doing Apologies of the Week, Howard Dean, for example, is sorry for suggesting that Donald Trump used cocaine. Yes, that happened. But he demanded America's news media apologize for not calling out Trump's own dangerous use of innuendo. So I apologize for using innuendo, he said on MSNBC. I don't think it's a good thing to do. I don't think it's the right thing to do. This entire campaign has been debased by innuendo. Though, Dean's apology fell short of a true expression of remorse for accusing the Republican nominee over Twitter of using cocaine. Uh, That was triggered by Trump repeatedly sniffing during Monday's presidential debate. The former governor of Vermont critiqued the media for not doing more to stop Trump. Should have thought of that in the 90s. And they were putting him on the front, on the cover of Time magazine because he was the local loudmouth in New York. Dateline, Fawcett, Missouri. A school-sanctioned video on the Civil War drew criticism for its portrayal of slavery. Some high school students in the mid-Buchanan River Valley School District, teacher Colby Gibbons' social study class, created a video illustrating the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Those laws were created to force the return of escaped slaves from the South who had fled to northern states. The student interpretation of the act depicted the plight of the runaway slaves <laughs> in a humorous way. The video had musical snippets from the Mission Impossible TV show theme, Song of the South, and a little uh, ditty about picking cotton along with some exaggerated southern language, lots of giggling, and three stooges antics throughout. The video was created by all white students. Had one scene that showed one of the students whipping a runaway slave. Mid Buchanan has approximately 12 African American students in 7th through 12th grades. The uh, teacher, Colby Gibson, said the video wasn't meant to be offensive and that maybe his students didn't use the best judgment. I think it probably could have been d- done in better taste. I don't think it was meant to be offensive, and if it was, I apologize. I'm sure the students would apologize as well, he said. In fact, the students subsequently released the video on YouTube. It was taken down after the local newspaper brought it to the attention of school officials. Humor really by amateurs, ladies and gentlemen. Always a good idea. 
HP Incorporated has apologized to customers for a software update that made some of its printers stop working with ink cartridges from competing suppliers, even if the printers had accepted the same cartridges in the past. The apology came after critics complained HP had overreached by interfering with its customers' right to choose ink suppliers. Critics also warned it could make customers less likely to accept future software updates, leaving their printers vulnerable to hackers or malware. Since they're AP, HP printers, that might be an improvement. Dateline Missouri, a group that urges single women, minorities, and millennials to register to vote, is apologizing for sending 95,000 mailings listing the wrong Missouri registration deadline. Washington-based Voter Participation Center says the registration forms listed the voter registration cutoff as October 17th. It's actually October 12th. The center calls the matter inadvertent and has apologized in writing to the Secretary of State. The one from Missouri, not the one who's busy in Syria. Portland, Oregon reporter Chris Willis, who works for the NBC affiliate there, KGW, and his boss, executive director, News director Rick Jacobs have apologized for victim-blaming and insensitive comments that were made on tape following an interview with a man accused of rape. Willis was interviewing a local musician who had admitted to sexually assaulting a woman, but not to a rape accusation. In the original version of the video, after the interview ended, the interviewer continues to speaking to um, the musician about the woman who accused him of rape, according to the Oregonian. The lawyer for the man, tells the reporter she thinks the accuser is a burlesque dancer after reporter Willis responds, not knowing that there is burlesque in Portland. He says, I'm hanging in the wrong social circle. Then a person setting up lights for the interview says, and then you're a victim of that. You're victimized, unquote. Willis apologized on his Facebook page, saying he didn't mean to offend anyone, but he knows that he made offensive comments. I'm sorry for the comments I made in a recent interview that was published on the website. They do not reflect my views or values. I did not intend to offend anyone in any way, and I apologize unreservedly for what was said. I understand the remarks I made were offensive. That was not my intent, but it was the result, and I'm devastated by that. I sincerely apologize and pledge to learn from this experience. He uh, apologized. Oh, uh, the news director apologized in a statement published by the newspaper. We apologize for those comments, he said. We've removed the interview from our website. Daylight Columbus, Georgia, the Muscogee County Sheriff's Office in Georgia has publicly apologized to a Georgia mother after a deputy allegedly threatened to arrest her for indecent exposure because she was breastfeeding. Savannah Shukla was grocery shopping at a Piggly Wiggly Sunday night when her one-month-old got hungry. He was uh, right as he is now, on the boob, asleep, she said. After checking out, the deputy stopped her and allegedly asked her to cover up. I'm not doing anything wrong, she said. Then she says she told the deputy Georgia law does allow mothers to breastfeed in any location where the mother and baby are otherwise authorized to be. That's when the deputy grew frustrated and threatened to arrest her. He was like, well, ma'am, I already see your areola, and if he unlatches and shows nipple, that is considered indecent exposure. She filed an official complaint, hoping other mothers won't receive the same treatment from the Muskogee County Sheriff's Officer. Southwest Airlines has apologized after a flight to Atlanta from the Dominican Republic turned into a three-day ordeal for passengers. The flight from Punta Cana was canceled because of a mechanical issue. Passengers said they waited on the tarmac on a hot plane for 90 minutes. The airline arranged for a hotel, but the passengers said the hotel was filthy and infested with roaches. 
Everybody wants first class these days. There was stuff on the walls, bugs in the sheets, hair in the sheets, said one passenger. They ended up moving to another hotel at their own expense. Then they went back to the airport. But the minute we got on, we knew something was wrong because it was hot on the plane, said one passenger. The captain announced the plane had another mechanical issue. That flight was canceled only after they'd waited for two hours and running out of ice and water in the meantime. They spent another night in Punta Cana, returned to the airport for another delay on the third day. The crew couldn't fly because they'd already flown the maximum number of hours allowed. It took a few more hours for the airline to bring in another crew. Southwest says it's giving passengers $400 in vouchers for future tickets and refunding the cost of their trip home. But it won't pay the other expenses because they don't have to. Dateline Metropolis, Illinois, a newspaper political cartoon making fun of a police shooting, has the police chief, Harry Mass, ticked off. Disgusted, it was from the southern Illinoisan, which is supposed to represent all of us down here, he said. In the cartoon, a bubble above a bunch of cops with weapons drawn reads, his hands weren't up high enough. But the chief was really upset by the squad car in the background of the cartoon, Tulsa PD, Black Lives Don't Matter. The newspaper has apologized for the cartoon, saying they believe it was in poor taste. But the chief says it was too little, too late. Former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani was invited to speak to a financial services trade group's award dinner last week. He was supposed to speak about leadership, but instead delivered a political speech that strayed so far from the topic. The group felt it necessary to apologize to its guests. The Commercial Finance Association sent out an email apologizing for the unscripted personal opinions that Giuliani shared with the crowd at their dinner at the Waldorf. While we, the event organizers, made every attempt to direct Mr. Giuliani's remarks ahead of time to focus on leadership, for which he's renowned and has authored a book, there's always the possibility of such a surprise at a live event. For those of you who are offended by Mr. Giuliani's remarks, please accept my sincere apology. He has been canceled as a keynote speaker for a conference held by the International Council of Shopping Centers following letters from real estate professionals who deem him divisive. An attendee told the New York Observer the crowd was shocked by Giuliani's comments at the New York event and that some people began complaining about his speech almost immediately after it was over. Why'd they wait that so long? And Rochester, Minnesota area builders has issued an apology for an offensive joke made by a guest Tuesday night during an event that included a city council candidate's forum. The Builders Association hosted representatives of its member companies, media, and a dinner and social hour followed by the forum with the city council candidates. Prior to the candidate forum, a guest at the event took the microphone and addressed the audience with a joke that was racially insensitive, discriminatory, and involved Donald Trump, according to other guests. City Council member took time from his opening remarks to address the joke, saying it was inappropriate. The Builders Executive Director, John Eichen, issued a statement. I would like to apologize for any offense the joke may have created. We are and will continue to be an inclusive and welcoming association. We do not condone racism or discrimination in any way. The moderator of the forum apologized for not speaking out at the time of the joke. I sensed, he said, it was more of an anti-Trump story than a racist one, thus my lack of comment. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. As always, it's a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations, over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave. Crank that baby up. On the Mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, available for your smartphone, oh, around the world by the Internet at two different locations. Let's not forget the Internet. Two different locations, harryshare.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com and available as a free podcast from Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, iTunes, Tune in at WWNO.org. And it'll be just like not having to defend either public opinion polls or beauty passions if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. Chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago in exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, the playlist of the music heard here on, and your opportunity to get Cars I Talk t-shirts and outfit your whole family in them. And Christmas is coming. That's all at harryshearer.com. And me, I don't get up at 3.30 in the morning, usually. But I am on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station for the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the home of the homeless.